Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Eric Dietrich, Professor of Philosophy at Binghamton University. His new book is Excellent Beauty, The Naturalness of Religion and the Unnaturalness of the World, and it's just out from Columbia University Press. Although there are many deep criticisms of a scientific view of humanity and of the world, a persistent theme is that the scientific worldview eliminates mystery, and in particular, the wonders and mysteries of the world's religions. In Excellent Beauty, Dietrich argues that the human thirst for mystery would still be slated even if we explained away the mysteries of religion in scientific and specifically evolutionary terms. Among the strange excellent beauties, he claims, are consciousness and infinity. Dietrich describes the structure of spiritual journeys, the social bonding role of religious belief, and our ineliminably Janus-faced nature as creatures who dislike open-ended mysteries but love magical thinking. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Eric Dietrich. Are you there? Yes. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Good to be here. Um, Well, I'm really interested to talk about your book, Excellent Beauty, uh, The Naturalness of Religion and the Unnaturalness of the World. Um, it's kind of an interesting approach to the problem of explaining religion, um, which is really more about, I think, uh, the problem that's raised for a scientific worldview that it kind of deprives us of mysteries. And, and your your goal overall is, is not so much to give, as I take it, uh, an evolutionary account of religion, which you do, I mean, other people have, and you, you build on that work. But it's more to explain how uh, there's mystery in the world, even if science can explain religion. And so it's a, it's kind of an interesting, different sort of approach to the problem of religion versus sciences, as one might put it in very general terms. Um, so before we get into the actual text of the book, maybe you can say a word about uh, yourself, your own background, and how you came to write this book. Um, okay. Um, well, uh, let's see. I sort of got interested in philosophy uh, back in high school, philosophy and science. I was always interested in ideas. And um, uh, uh, the idea that... Um, there's this war between science and religion that has always intrigued me. I've taught several courses on it. And, um, 
so I thought I'd write a book about it. Uh, originally, what happened was that I thought what I would do is write a book defending um, uh, some religions just on moral grounds, uh, for example, paganism or Jainism, defending those two religions based on the fact that they 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 strike uh, uh, people as sometimes being highly moral. They draw as few invidious distinctions as, as possible. Mm-hmm. But um, as with, I think, all books, uh, the book developed a mind of its own, and uh, it kind of wrote me instead of me writing it. And what came out was um, that... Uh, the book is on the war between science and religion, but the but the main theme of the book, the thesis of the book, is about the war between science and truth. And the truth is, science unearths a lot of very puzzling facts and fails to explain a lot of very obvious facts. And I thought, this needs to be shared with the world. And that's how Excellent Beauty came to be written. Okay. Um, So you start off in the very beginning with the guiding idea that um, for many scientists, and I assume people with a scientific worldview in general, um, consider the world, flat, as you put it, flatly natural and... um, and your your claim is no, the world is not flatly natural, or at least that the scientific scientific worldview does not result in a flatly natural worldview. Right? So can you can you kind of explain this overarching theme? Right. Yes. Um, well, I I uh, grew up in that um, with that worldview that the world is flatly natural. Uh, my father was a geologist. Um, it was, like I said, it was just wonderful to me that you could explain why there's a mountain here, but not one over there. I mean, the fact that you could do that was just wonderful to me. And, and of course, I overgeneralized, like, like a lot of people. And I said, well, the world is flatly natural. It's, um, the world is a sort of thing that, at least in principle, is completely understandable. Um, in college, I majored in mathematics and, uh, there's a lot of weird things there. And I just sort of puzzled over them, but I just kind of, I just kind of, uh, shelved them. And then, you know, as the years went by, I, uh, picked up more and more of these and I thought, you know, uh, the world isn't flatly natural. And then, I noticed that the flatly natural point of view had sort of a, let's see, had sort of a moral imperative behind it. In other words, um, it became sort of a a rallying cry. There was an in-group who thought that the world was flatly natural and you violated certain group rules if you questioned that view. That's sort of when I started thinking, well, the flatly natural worldview isn't, is, is more of an act of faith, really, than anything else. And that's when I started questioning it. And that's what, uh, like I said, that's what the, 
thesis of the book, Excellent Beauty is about. That's what the book's named after, all these odd, very puzzling things that science on Earth are uh, are called excellent beauties. I call them excellent beauties. Right. So we'll we'll get into we'll get into some of them uh, later on. You mentioned a couple like um, consciousness and well, that was, infinity. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh uh, no, I was I was going to say just to that was just to not leave that question hanging for the for listeners. Like, well, so what is he talking about? Um, uh, but I, I do want to get to some of the excellent beauties. Uh, but I first wanted to, you know, go through a bit of the the four sections of the book. I mean, okay. you, you have it, um, you know. So in the beginning, you kind of go through the idea of a of a spiritual journey, which I thought was you know super interesting. The different stages and and yeah. things like that, um, and then the the evolutionary explanation of religion that you draw on Daniel Dennett and David Sloan Wilson. Um, And the way this spiritual journey um, kind of falls apart. Um, And then these new excellent beauties, right? Um, Right. So uh, before we get to those beauties, um, maybe you can outline for us your, uh, your, your view of, the structure of a spiritual journey um, mm-hmm. and how it sets the stage for how you understand religion. Um, right. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, I, let me, let me just insert one thing real quick about the flatly natural view, which I, um, which I focused on. Um, humans don't like ambiguity. They don't really like living in a world where things sit around unexplained. And um, in that, it turns out that both scientists and religious people uh, agree. They uh, Nobody likes uh, open-ended puzzles, open-ended mysteries. So um, that's, a, that's a thing that they have in common. Okay, so as to the notion of a, of a spiritual journey, um, I set the book up that way because I wanted to move the reader from being religious to at least perhaps only for a short time, questioning the notion of being religious so that that would leave open a little gap where I could perhaps uh, make a successful case for the excellent beauties. Um, Now, did you have a question about the stages? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell us about the, yeah, because I thought that was especially being stuck in, you know, if this three-stage view of a spiritual journey, and then you've got this middle stage where we're stuck, and I thought that was a... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so... um, uh, yeah, I, I did this using um, uh, my own uh, little quasi-spiritual journey with Santa Claus. Um, so in stage one, uh, uh, in general, religions are just obviously true. Of course, there's a God. In, in, the, in the thing I was talking about in the book, of course, there's a Santa Claus. And of course, such a being would bring toys to children. I mean, duh. And... Um, 
there's no questioning of the religion at all. Stage two, the real world starts to encroach and grow, but it doesn't grow completely to fill the space. There are magical corners in stage two. And um, so, uh, yeah, there's no, there's no Santa Claus. You're, you're, I, I figured out my parents were buying the gifts and putting them out at night. Um, uh, but uh, there are still magical, there's still these magical corners of the world. There's still these, these um, places where uh, spirituality, prayer, magic, all that kind of stuff works. It's just not common. Mm-hmm. Stage three is all of that's gone. The world is flatly natural. And uh, what I noted was very few of us can actually live at stage one. I mean, even the Pope can't live at stage one. So uh, I mean, he might be mostly in stage one, but even he uh, winds up living pretty much in stage two. And very few of us can live in stage three. I mean, Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris, you know, these sort of well-known atheists, they probably live, well, maybe not even Sam Harris, actually. He tends to be sort of Buddhist friendly. So, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, the hardcore flaming atheist. uh, So let's pick Richard Dawkins. He lives at stage three. But very few people can do that. And so what happens is we all wind up uh, living in stage two, uh, which is is a, a very peculiar place to be because on the one hand, uh, we have to get up and go to work in the mornings and, um, you know, our children get sick and prayer isn't going to help that. We got to take them to the doctor and blah, 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 blah. But we can't give up completely our religious side. And so we go to church, we go to synagogue, we meditate, we cast spells, you know, whatever. And um, that's where we all live. Why, most why, of our lives. Why, why can't we? Maybe you could. Why can't we? What? Why, why can't we join Dawkins, let's say, in stage three? Don't try it. I mean, you know, maybe maybe you can, but the vast majority of humans cannot. I mean, I have a chapter in the book called The One Billion, where I write about the third largest uh, religious preference, which is none. But um, it's only the third largest. By far, the largest preference is religious. I mean, most people on planet Earth are religious. There's little over 7 billion people, if 1 billion of them, 1 billion of them are not religious, uh, 6 billion of them are. So it's just hard to do. And all of that, I mean, that very question that you asked, the reason it's so hard mm. to, to be what we might call a flaming atheist, that strongly suggests an evolutionary and therefore genetic component to our religious to our being religious. We're driven to be religious by structures in our brain. It's the same way that we're driven to speak a natural language by structures in our brain. Okay, so how does this... um, uh, So maybe you could say how you're defining religion, right? Ah, right, right. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a, a, a segment of a chapter on that. Religion has three components. It's a social system. It's, it's a group system. It brings people together. And then it has uh, uh, two other components which serve to make it, I mean, country clubs being bring groups together, uh, so does being a Broncos fan, for example. Uh, so what does religion uniquely bring to the situation? And uh, it brings um, a notion of the supernatural. All religions have a supernatural component. Mm-hmm. That is, all religions have a component where they have to deny the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, and the laws of biology. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of religions say, well, we only deny a couple <laughs> But the the thing is, the laws all work together, so it's just a big negation sign in front of science. And that's what makes stage two so interesting, because a lot of us believe in science. We use science in our daily lives. We just put it to one side when we uh, engage in our religion. So, uh, the, uh, so have, I, have I answered that question? Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. So... Um so one other thing, I mean, you mentioned the one million, you know, the people. The one billion. One billion, sorry. Right. My, my my error. Uh, of of people who don't profess religious belief. Um, right. uh, one of the things that was among the many interesting things was that you mentioned. Um, you start off one chapter uh, where you make note of the fact that this idea that, as you just put it, that religion is evolutionary, um, uh, as you put it, driven by structures in the brain. I mean, we can get back to that particular comment later. But um, you you juxtapose the idea that um, uh, when you present somebody, one of the seven or six billion uh, with the idea that there is no God or, or any of the anti-religious sort of or atheistic um, claims, mm-hmm. they they get uh, they get very upset, you know, that that we might right. be descended from apes. Whereas nobody gets terribly upset by the fact that there are there's a sexual assault in the United States every minute or two minutes, or and you know and and so on and so forth with all the you know constant evils that go on in the world. Right. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting way to um, to sort of raise the issue of what um, you know what is it about the religious attitude that lets us that makes us get so fired up about the one question the the apes right. and 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 not get fired up at least not to an equivalent degree, uh, about the, you know, the evil question. Right, right. Well, that cuts to the core of, the, of our knowledge that religion is an evolutionary adaptation. I, uh, when I was writing the book and teaching courses on this topic, I would, um, I would interview students about this, and I especially concentrated on religious students. And to a student... They said things like, I would say, there's a rape or a sexual assault in the United States every two minutes. That's just the United States, right. and that's just sexual assault. If we think about the number of bad things people can do, and we extend it to the world, 
uh, something is happening probably every second of right. every day. And their attitude was, uh, uh, I remember one student in particular saying, well, look, God will just sort it all out. And I thought, uh, it, was, it was striking. I thought, holy mackerel, he's, he's invulnerable. He's like the student. He's like, was, I, I thought, he's like Superman, and I'm shooting, shooting him with a gun, and the bullets are just bouncing off. He, it has this, the, the rate every two minutes has no effect on him at all. But, um, but you tell somebody that they're an African ape, and now you've got a fight on your hands. They're mad. And that just cries out for an evolutionary explanation. But what happens is our religious beliefs are completely ungrounded. They are funded entirely by our, our evolutionary history. And so our religious beliefs are therefore unshakable by counter evidence. So, uh, uh, facts about rape, for example, become completely impotent. Um, but religions, one of the, one of the things religions do is by making us belong to a group. Humans are social animals. So by making us belong to a group, we get to feel special. Um, any group does that. You know, you get invited to join uh, Phi Beta Kappa when you're in college and, and all these groups make you feel special and coming along and saying, by the way, you're an African ape. That makes you feel not special. And now you're mad. You know, rapes don't have any effect on how you feel about yourself and your connection with your community. But, um, because God's going to sort it all out in the end. But the fact that we're African apes, that might mean there isn't a God. And now you're mad. Now you're mad. Now you're angry. It has to be overthrown. We're going to stop teaching it in high school to our biology students. We're going to pass laws against it. Well, if I guess, you know, if uh, belief is, is impervious to facts, um, yeah. why would we get angry about the one but not about the other? It would seem that we'd be impervious to all of them. No, no, the uh, we're not. Well, I'm. You know, I have met people. I say, "Look, you're an African ape," and they go, "Yeah, whatever. Uh, that's your opinion, dude." Mm-hmm. So, uh, it. But in general, people do get upset about that, and it's, and it's for, for the reason I said. It's because that threatens the foundation of the group. That threatens their sense of specialness. Mm-hmm. But telling people that there's a rape every two minutes doesn't, and. Um, there is also a first-person, uh, third-person thing going on here. If I say to a religious person, "Look, there's a rape that occurs every two minutes," every two minutes, they can have a third-person perspective on that. They go, "Well, that sucks, but God will fix it." But then I say, "You are an African ape." Now they have this first-person perspective, and they go, "I am not. You're a liar." So you're an evolutionist. You are in league with the devil. So, uh, I, and I get that periodically, by the way. Um, so that, th- that is what explains the fact that the one, but not the other, causes so much anguish. Right? You don't you, you go to Kansas and say, hey, there's a rape every two minutes, and no one's going to care. 
No one's going to care. They're not going to pass laws outlawing religion. Uh, but you go to Kansas and you say, uh, we're all African apes, and they will prevent you from getting hired by the University of Kansas or Kansas State. Because they don't want, or certainly in the high schools, because they don't want you teaching their children that horrible, horrible idea. Well, maybe you can, can you say a bit more about um, this relationship between religion and group, group enforcement or group loyalty? Right. Well, um, that's a, that's kind of complex. That's the part of the book where I lay out the theory that, uh, that religion is an evolutionary adaptation. By the way, I do all of this so that I can sideline religion. My, my, my goal in the first part of the book, first parts of the book, is to sideline religion because frequently only religious mysteries are counted as legitimate mysteries. And those are the ones I want to remove. I want mm-hmm. to say, these aren't mysteries at all. Right? These, these, are, these are just sillinesses. We need to get rid of those. And once we get rid of them, we can see the real mysteries for what they are. And these real mysteries, I know we're going to talk about it uh, later, but these real mysteries are, of course, real. <laughs> That's what's interesting about them. Anybody can see them. So, um, but um, the religious mysteries, of course, you have to be in the religion to see them. So I have a little chapter on that, too, towards the end of the book. Um Okay, so I'm sorry, I lost track of that. Well, the, the idea was about the, the role of religion in forming group right, loyalty. Right. I mean, that was part so, of the evolutionary... Right, so it does it in two ways, primarily. Um, there's this long, sort of complex story about how we love uh, weird explanations. We love, we love strangenesses, and... Um, uh, so I'm just use the, the example from the book. Uh, so you're sitting in the forest and, um, you hear a branch, a twig snap and you think, Oh, it's, you know, it's probably Jones, uh, over there getting ready for, you know, the animal hunting or something. And then as you sit there, you think, yeah, it's probably Jones or maybe it's Smith. And then you think, Hey, maybe it's a walking tree. Hey, yeah, walking tree. And you get all excited about that. And let's, let's imagine this occurred, you know, 200,000 years ago. And what happens after, you know, a couple of years, let's say, is the walking tree clan forms. And, uh, the na- the main deity is this walking tree, which, um, turns out only you have experience. So that makes you even more special. And so one of the things that knits the group together is this idea that we have a, uh, we all have this sort of shared, um, mystical, sacred connection. Um, um, oh, I don't know if I mentioned that when I was, uh, describing religions. They're, uh, they're, uh, social groups. They have a supernatural connection and they also have a whole notion of sacred. Right. Mm-hmm. So these three things. Uh, uh, knit groups together, have a supernatural connection, and then have a, a, a sacred aspect. Well, this walking tree is sacred. Um, so accepting this helps, makes us special. And furthermore, it's all kind of secret, right? So the people who live across the river who worship rocks, those people are just stupid, right? We don't like them. And 
Uh, so what happens is this, our group forms and we, we, because we share this sacred, even supernatural connection. Then the second aspect, um, is that, uh, uh, the supernatural aspect of the religion helps enforce the moral rules or not even really moral rules, the rules of group membership, the, the things that knit our society together, uh, the beliefs that, that the foundational beliefs that we have that knit our society together. That is what, uh, those two things make a group out of us and the group connection in humans our group membership has an upside and a downside. The upside is, as a member of a group, we're very robust. I mean, humans are uh, a, the dominant species on the planet primarily because um, of our group membership. We belong in groups and we work together. And, and when we work together, we can do we can eradicate disease. We can also wipe out whole rainforests. So, uh, and the downside there is, is that we have, uh, outgroup hate, hatreds and these outgroup, outgroup hatreds help knit, also help knit the group together. And that's also funded by religion. So, like I said earlier, what happens is, um, uh, we all belong to the walking tree clan and that's very cool. And there's all these secret rituals that we do and, and nobody knows about them. And then those people on the other side of across the river over there who worship rocks, we hate them. And that helps knit us together because we hate those people over there. Just like hating Democrats helps, helps knit Republicans together and vice versa. Okay. Um, uh, some, I, I want to ask, um, I mean, there's more to ask about the, the whole evolutionary uh, explanation, but as you, as you mentioned, um, you kind of want to, the whole point is, let's, let's, those mysteries can be explained. Now let's look at the, the real mysteries, right? That's, real mysteries. that's the non-flat view, right, that you're, that you're trying to defend. So let's. The non-flat, um, yeah, good way to put it. Well. Um, I don't. I don't know if it's original to me, actually. But actually, I've never heard anybody say the non-flat view. So. Well, <laughs> uh, um, in any case, um, so one of the things, and and another thing you mentioned was the fact, both facts, that we don't like open-ended mysteries, um, and now we've gotten rid of these, or at least evolutionary explanation maybe can get rid of these. Uh, but we also love strange things. And one of the things you say in towards the end of the book, before you get into some of the the excellent beauties, is this idea that we are in some sense Janus faced or dual nature. We have this we we both you know crave uh, an explanation of everything, and yet at the same time, uh, we we love things that are unexplained or mysterious or strange. Can can you say something about that? Absolutely. There's a very important point there. It's a really good question. We don't love strange things. Uh, uh, what we love are uh, strange beings. See, humans, psychologists call this, um, uh, cognitive psychologists call this magical thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that humans do really well is see agents where there aren't any. Now, everybody is very familiar with the idea that we see faces. 
we, where there aren't any. We see faces, like there's the man in the moon or the woman in the moon. Some people see a rabbit. Uh, but it's, you just go out there on a full moon and look at it, and you will see a face. Right? And we see faces in trees. We see Mother Mary on a tortilla or the foots of Jesus on a tortilla. You know, that this happens all the time. We see faces everywhere. But we don't just see faces. We see agents. And uh, arguably, we're hardwired to see agents, um, just like we're hardwired to see faces. And, um, and because we do, uh, and because we understand agents as sort of a source of their own behavior, postulating agents behind things explains away certain, certain things without actually explaining them. So, for example, um, pick something pick uh, something that I heard a lot at the time uh, in, in the attacks of 9-11. Mm-hmm. heard people say a lot, well, look, it was God's will because we're a nation that condones homosexuality. Now, um, uh, this explains 9-11 because it invokes an agent, God. But how come we need, but the idea, well, how, we should explain why God did this. Uh, it seems excessive. It seems a little over the top to kill that many thousands of people and cause that much anguish and destruction over uh, something that is uh, completely moral. It has, that's not immoral at all. And, that just got dismissed. Why? Because God is an agent. God decides for itself what it's going to do. And the same thing with the walking tree. I mean, how come our village got flooded? Well, the walking tree, you know, let it happen because of blah, 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 blah. And that's all okay. And we're happy with that because of our magical thinking. We see agents behind all kinds of things. Agents that aren't really there, but they, they're excused from having their behavior explained precisely because they're agents, precisely because they are the font of their own desires, just as we are. So that wraps everything up in this nice bow. We want to explain Hurricane Katrina. We invoke God, and then we wonder why God did it, but, but that's okay. God has his reasons. Maybe he'll tell us when we get to heaven. Uh, but we don't have to worry about that once we figure out that God was the one behind it. Because, for example, members of our family do weird things, and we say, why did you do that? And they go, well, I don't know. It's a, they offer some lame explanation, and we go, okay, whatever. People are always doing strange things, and so are the agents that we invoke. So, um, so I mean, one of, um, I mean, we so do, that- yeah, well, I, I wanted to talk about uh, I mean, you you give an a give an evolutionary account of religion, hmm. you know, to get rid of those mysteries, these right. these invoked agents, whatever. Um, but at the same time, you also say uh, we're kind of stuck with it. It's it's not like uh, we can get rid of it, and that's what I thought was interesting. If you could, yeah, we can't get rid of it. That's that's precisely because we all live at stage two. We all live at stage two. We can't get rid of it. So we wind up being Janus-faced. On the one hand, 
you know, we, we, we look one direction and we see religion. We look another direction and we see the natural world and ordinary uh, causal explanations. And uh, we just have to, li- we live in that realm. But uh, to the extent that we're religious, that's, you know, in, it, you know, we don't like, we don't like, mysteries in general, what we, what we can tolerate fairly easily are oddly behaving deities, right? So if Thor brings down some lightning and causes a forest fire, we just say, well, that's just Thor. You know, he's kind of a jerk that way. So, you know, that's what we don't have trouble with. And that's simply because we uh, are hardwired to see agents and we're also hardwired to expect agents to do things that we don't really understand. But actually, uh, you know, a puzzle, scientists like puzzles, you know, they, they run the Large Hadron Collider and they don't find the Higgs boson. Now everybody's going to be really interested. But they're not interested because they think this shows the world is not flatly natural. They're interested because it gives them something to do in their quest to show that the world is flatly natural. There's a, there's a little extra hiccup Right, an extra hurdle to go beyond. Now everybody's thrilled because there's more work to do. Well, um, so I guess uh, the implication is that we can't learn um, that. I mean, you keep saying hardwired, and it's like I can't, I can't learn not. I mean, you use the the device of the Muller liar illusion, right? Yeah. So we, we, we know it's not true, but we can't help seeing that the lines are of different yeah. lengths. Um, and I thought that was a very curious analogy for religion uh, because, well, I mean, could you explain that analogy exactly? And, and, because it's it, our our visual systems are, you know, you might say hardwired in certain hardwired, ways, yeah. Um, yeah. and and that sort of you know. Well, yeah. they can learn too. I mean, well, uh, we we can learn that the Muller liar illusion is an illusion that the lines are not actually different lengths. Right. Uh, but what you seem to be saying, and this is what this is sort of my question is. That even though we know that there aren't these supernatural agents and stuff like that, uh, mm. even though we could learn this, or maybe that's the issue, we, we, uh, we, right. we, we can't, can't we can't we can't learn it. Is that the idea? That's right. We can't learn it. We're 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 saddled with an illusion. Uh, that's why I have a, a chapter in the book called "There's No." Uh, I, well, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the theme, the thesis of the chapter is that. There's no such thing as Christianity. It's, it's, it's not that, oh, I think it's called beyond atheism. It's not that there's no such thing as God. There isn't. But that's not the issue. The real issue is there's no such thing as Christianity. There's no such thing as this, as sin being the most important thing in your life. And this guy died to take away your sin so that you can go to heaven. But in order for that to happen, you have to believe into it. That believe in him. Uh, that whole thing is false. There are Christians, of course, but there's no such thing as Christianity. There's no such thing as Judaism. There's no such thing as Buddhism, Hinduism. Right? There's Hindus, there's Buddhists, there's Jews, but the, none of these religions are real. 
None of these religions actually exist. They're all illusions, just like the Mueller liar illusion, the one where the lie, and, and you can, you can, <laughs> what's nice about that? I mean, you can do this yourself at home, uh, for an exercise, draw two lines, horizontal lines that are exactly the same length. Use a ruler and a straight edge and, um, and then put the arrows on them in the appropriate ways. The one has the arrows, you know, pointing out. And the other one has the arrows pointing in. And instantly the lines will look of unequal length to you. Um, why? Well, no one's really sure. And there is some evidence that the mutual liar illusion um, might be uh, uh, culturally relative, although that evidence hasn't withstood much scrutiny. But um, Let's assume it's just a general human property, and no one's really sure why it happens that way. There's been some theories about it. it has to do with understanding how corners work, but um, maybe uh, that's just kind of a stab. So at the end of the day, we don't really know. Uh, but we do know about the uh, illusions of religion. These are uh, all religions are a function of two things: our evolutionary history, the fact that we're hardwired to be religious, and then secondly. Uh, the, the, the artifact, the local sort of cultural artifact of being in the religion that we're in. It's just like language. We could have uh, grown up to speak French or Swahili or Mandarin, any, any number of the languages on earth today, but we didn't. We grew up in a country that spoke English. And English is also a bit of a fluke. There could have, there's easily a possible world where there's no language like English. Um, and nobody speaks it. So that's all, that's all perfectly fine. Uh, but speaking a language is not something that's, that's up in the air. We don't learn to speak simply because we live in a culture that speaks. We learn to speak because we evolved a language ability. Humans have brain. No one understands any of the technical details, but we have brain mechanisms that we're hardwired to have. Normal, healthy humans are hardwired to have that allow us to speak some natural language or other. Which one we speak is a bit of a, is, is a coin toss, several coin tosses actually. But, um, uh, but that we speak a language isn't. If we're normal, healthy humans, we will speak a language just as night follows day. But um, I, I guess if uh, it would seem then that uh, those who think that religion is an illusion are are did you say isn't isn't a isn't an illusion? Is that what you said? Those who think that uh, it is is not an illusion are right, are basically saying. born that way, and Correct. the people who think uh, well, both sides are born that way, and. Right. You know, atheists sort of have their own evolutionary explanation. And, uh, well, yeah, you know, yeah. matters here are really quite complicated. For example, let me, let me give you a, a, an example off to one side that's actually quite relevant. Um, homosexuality persists in the human population. It has since the beginning of humans, and it persists to this day. And the question has always been, why? How come homosexuals persist since uh, they don't probably mate in great enough numbers 
to reproduce in any way the children of homosexuals are very rarely themselves homosexual? Well, uh, no one knows the answer to that question, but it probably has something to do with the genes that produce heterosexual humans sometimes recombine in uh, uh, ways at a certain set frequency and produce homosexuals somewhere between 5 and 10% of the time, which is why between 5 and 10% of the population is gay. Okay, uh, that's fine. Well, it's the same thing with religion. Um, uh, every once in a while, uh, uh, say one-seventh of the time, who knows, but um, uh, somebody is produced and their religion gene didn't quite turn on right. Now, uh, complexity is, I have a big footnote on this in the book, a complexity in this is as the world gets more and more uh as the, the felt danger in the world increases, um, uh, people, the, the one billion uh, appears to be shrinking. So it's sort of like we all have latent genes for religion, and, and a lot of us don't turn to those except now we live in an era when uh, ISIS is attacking and Donald Trump could be president and uh, uh, it's, you know, a, somebody just, you know, some person out of some random person could put together a nuclear weapon, a dirty bomb of some sort from, from instructions he or she got off the Internet and do serious damage. Someone can unleash uh, anthrax and, you know, cause all kinds of problems. It's a, it's a dangerous world, and every once in a while someone makes a movie about an incoming asteroid, and we never used to think about that, but now we do. And, and all of that has having this diminishing effect on the one billion. That number seems to be getting smaller on the available uh, scientific survey evidence and that's depressing but it also shows that this being uh, in the flaming atheist category stage three it's reasonably hard to do i mean i have met people for whom uh i mean they they didn't turn to religion hardly at all except uh when their loved one was dying and when their loved one was dying they didn't turn to religion per se but they did use phrases like, please send positive energy. Mm-hmm. And um, I would do that myself. Uh, so there's a sense in which, you know, we don't, all, we don't escape it completely. We just have people who have uh, less of a innate religious engine uh, um, or, 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 uh, less innate draw to religion. But perhaps nearly all humans have at least some. You know, it'd be a, it'd be a rare person who was losing their loved one who said, um, uh, you know, I, thank you for all your well wishes, everybody. Uh, if you want to send me a, uh, some sort of happy thought, written in English or the language of your choice, please do. Thank you. That would be rare. That would be really rare. Hmm. Well, um, I guess the last question along these lines, Um, why think that the religious view is the illusory one? Because I don't, 
because it's false. I mean, well, but you know, praise to God doesn't help ever. It's not that. See, I mentioned this, or I actually discussed. Well, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, I'm just you know sort of putting the the theist's hat on. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you can. There's a lot of consistency that you can find, uh, and and for an unbeliever, obviously this is not going to be satisfactory that, you know, we did it from our own free will or God is just like that or something like that. But if most, you know, if if 6 billion out of 7 billion think that that's right and uh, it's just a matter of the evolutionary cards, whether we happen to be believer or unbeliever, I don't see where one gets to say that one side is the illusion, especially when they're vastly the majority, and the and the other is like seeing things clearly. That's that's what I'm trying to find out. Right. That's the war between science and religion. The um, look, the religions don't agree. I mean, I mean, there is no agreement. The only thing the only thing they agree on is is forms the definition of religion. They agree that something is sacred, and they agree that there are supernatural that there are things. There are supernatural events, events that uh, uh, flatly deny the laws of physics. That's all they agree on. There are 30,000 versions of Christianity, and that's a conservative estimate. So you can't even get Christians to agree. How many versions of Catholicism are there? Catholicism uh, tries to you know, present itself as one version of Christianity, sorry, as the version of Christianity, and, but it's, it, it's at least a whole. It's the largest uh, Christian population. But that's just not true. There are thousands of versions of, of Catholicism alone. And, of course, the other uh, you know, 25,000 are all versions of Protestantism. So, you know, these religions don't agree at all. And that's just the very question. I mean, put on this, put on this, see you cheated or beg the question by putting on the religious hat. Don't do that. Ask the question, how come there are so many different religions and they all radically disagree with each other? And furthermore, a lot of them hate each other. They think they think the other religious people are just wrong. How could that possibly be? The only thing that could explain such diversity and such recalcitrance in the face of contravening evidence is evolution. The only thing that would set up such a, a, a brain state, such as a religious brain state, is evolution. And once you would, once you see that, then the idea that all religions are an illusion, like the Mueller liar illusion, becomes uh, an obvious consequence. The, the very the very issue you're raising, namely most people are religious, is the very issue that needs explaining especially given the fact that they also radically disagree with each other. I mean, it's hard to get two Catholics. You know, if you have fr- two friends that are Catholic and they're not married, you know, one friend is over here and the other friend's over there, or even if they are married, uh, they're going to disagree on some technical details. So uh, why is that? It's because there's nothing real to agree on. Okay, so let's let's get to the mysteries because I don't want to... I don't want to leave that out. Um, well, you know, that's one thing that happens. 
Yeah. Yeah. Beauty is that, um, you know, people get all caught up in the religious side because I'm trying to sideline it and people don't want it sidelined or they're puzzled about how it can be sidelined. And anyway, uh, yes, please, let's go on. So, yeah. Um, so you talk about the mysteries um, or excellent beauties, uh, truths that we we weakly understand or in some sense don't quite fully, fully grasp. Um, well, it's worse than that or better. Okay, anyway. depending on we your point of view. We weakly understand them means we can slightly manipulate them. That's it. We don't understand them in any in any deep sense at all. I mean, take consciousness for example. Suppose you're going to have gallbladder surgery or some, you know, some ankle surgery or something. Well, they can't just, you know, hack into your foot and start whittling away because that's going to hurt and you're going to scream bloody murder. Well, so they make your consciousness go away by using this gas and this drug. Great. Wonderful. Marvelous. Why do the gases work? Why do the drugs work? No clue. When I had uh, when I had surgery, I went out of my way to talk to the anesthesiologist. And well, I need some technical details here, and he said, "Look, we don't know them." You know, it was just, you know, you have to, you have to. <laughs> it's, it's it's what I was talking about with scientists. You know, they don't want to believe that at the end of the day, there's stuff they can't answer. But at the end of the day, there's stuff they can't answer, and and. Uh, and, you know, you get a good anesthesiologist who knows what's what, and you let him or her know that you're not some crackpot, that you're a legitimate uh, uh, person who likes ideas and you're just trying to understand what's going on. And you can get them to say the truth, which is that we don't know why your consciousness goes away during surgery. We don't even know why drinking alcohol alters your consciousness. All we know, it does the X, Y, and Z to your brain. We're not sure of the technical details there, but even if we were, it wouldn't help because we don't understand consciousness. So we weakly understand means only that we can sort of manipulate it, but we don't really get what's going on. Infinity is another example. I can eat, There's a proof in the book that infinity comes in sizes. I mean, it seems like, you know, the most outrageous thing ever, and surely the proof must be really complex, but it's not. The proof is fairly straightforward. I give it to my intro to logic class every time I teach the class. It's it's straightforward. It's not particularly difficult. And uh, so we can, that's weakly understand, we can give the proof, and it's fairly easy that infinity comes in sizes. But how the heck can infinity come in sizes? And again, you go over to the math department, you talk to them like I have, and again, you have to reassure them that you're not some crackpot because they don't want to actually reveal that they don't know something. But I have done this. Of course, my degree in mathematics helped. I have the secret little card, and I know the secret handshake. (laughs) So I got in, and I was talking, and they said, look, we don't know. And and a a mathematician colleague of mine said, you know, maybe – uh, infinity doesn't come in sizes. Maybe it's a complexity issue. Maybe one infinity is more complex than the other. And I said, well, do you have a mathematical way of describing that? And he said, no, I don't. It's just an idea I have. So, you know, we don't understand how infinity can come in sizes. All we know is that it does, and we can we can deploy the proof showing that it does. And, you know, going the other way, too, you know, sets that are clearly in mathematics, sets that are clearly subsets 
like the set of even numbers is clearly a subset of all the counting numbers. Mm. That proof is, you know, that's just straightforward. You just write it down. Everybody can see it. It's not, that's not, I mean, you learn that in high school, the set of even numbers is a subset, a proper subset of the counting numbers. Yet you can prove that the sets are the exact same size. That they don't show you in high school. I do it in my logic class, and everybody's freaked out about it. Because how can one set be smaller than a set and also the same size as the set? And that's the question. We don't know the answer to it. Mathematics doesn't help. (laughs) And And if you go in... And you ask them, I tell my students to go over to the math department and ask them, and some of them do, and they don't know the secret handshake, so they just get ushered out the door. You know, the math department calls up campus security, and the police escort them away, and that's that. They don't have to reveal that they don't actually know what's going on. Well, are these... um, Are these mysteries... I mean, they, they, they seem kind of... I mean, they're they are... There's lots of contradictions quantum mechanics is another source i don't i i'm not sure i agree about the consciousness um yeah you you, yeah yeah why don't you agree about consciousness i mean it seems we we don't understand i mean it's the one that got me started i was um um when i was um Many years ago, I, I, uh, I got to know David Chalmers, and I got to read an early draft of his book, The Conscious Mind, where he argues for dualism, sort of. And, um, and, and that's the thing that really got me going. I went, holy mackerel. I mean, you know, nobody is more of a friend of the flatly natural view than David Chalmers. You know, he's a hardcore philosopher. He knows a ton of science. Um, a ton of mathematics. And he just said, look, you know, at the end of the day, we're stuck. We absolutely cannot explain consciousness. And here, weakly understand, again, like I said, it just means we can make it go away during surgery and we can alter it with uh, a couple beers. Okay, fine. But what's going on? No clue. And in fact, uh, Chalmers went so far as to say, look, it's probably not a physical property of the brain that's 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 the conclusion of his book actually the conclusion of his book is not that it's probably (laughs) it's definitely not a physical property of the brain well let's um uh, that's that is a mystery well well, i mean yeah i I, we we could start a whole (laughs) whole uh, discussion there, but I but we're we're running it we're running out of time so don't i don't want to don't want to focus on that one um, but let me just, you know, ask one sort of final question about the book, uh, which is just, which I was going to ask a, mo- a moment ago, was um, these mysteries, I mean, some of these mysteries, um, yeah, they're things we don't know, uh, maybe we don't know now, maybe it's partly because we haven't thought up the right sort of mathematics or the right sort of physics with co- quantum mechanics or... You know, whatever. But uh, these don't seem any less amenable to scientific explanation at some point as religion has, apparently. Um, So they don't seem to be mysteries of the same sort of ilk that you get from 
religion. They just seem to be open scientific questions. I Unless you somehow find a way to show that these are not just mysteries that are linked to our current neuroscience or our current ways of articulating mathematics or our current ways of articulating quantum mechanics. Um, they're actually like deep things that we'll, we won't be able to ever fathom. Well, I, again, I, I know you didn't want to talk about it anymore, but the explanatory gap in consciousness, I mean, no one ha- has even come close to bridging it. And, and Dan Dennett thinks he has, but of course he's the only one that thinks that. So, uh, it, you know, it, it just seems, look, science might explain these but at, at a minimum, science is currently flabbergasted by all of these paradoxes, all the ones I list in the book and discuss. Um, logic, for example, it looks like the actual logic that we need is going to have to allow true contradictions. These are, these are contradictions that are, contradictions are always false, but some of them, are also true. So they're true and false at the same time, which means we live in an essentially paradoxical world. And there are plenty of very serious, sober logicians, philosophers and mathematicians who think this is a perfectly reasonable logic. It's the logic we need to describe our underlying reality. Given that, it does seem like it's, it's reasonable to say, well, look, science might explain these at some point, but the track record isn't good, and we've made no progress in understanding them. We've had the proof that infinity comes in sizes since the late 1800s uh, due to the work of Georg Cantor. But, you know, well over 100 years, 120, 130 years have gone by, and we don't really get what that means. And yes, at some point we might get it, but it's going to take, at a minimum, it's going to take a huge uh, uh, new vision of things, which we don't even see on the horizon. I mean, there's a bunch of things like this. And then there's, you know, minor things that just befuddle us. There's a, I talk about the Voynich manuscript in Yale University. And it's this manuscript that people think was written in the 15, possibly 1600s. And it's an entire manuscript with drawings and a whole bunch of writing. And nobody can decipher it. Nobody. Uh, and serious cryptologists have worked on it, and they can't decipher it. So you think, well, maybe it's just doodles on a page, page after page after page. But a statistical analysis of the symbols indicate that uh, it is a language, namely, if you do a statistical analysis of English, just so you know, you know, say a thousand pages of English, you expect to see certain letters occurring more than others, like E, for example, and certain certain words like DLG occurring more than certain others. And you see all these complex statistics. That's the same thing that happens in the Voynich manuscript. So it looks like a language. It's just not a language that anybody ever spoke on planet Earth. What, what, what? (laughs) I mean, yeah, maybe somebody will figure it out, or maybe it really is just a very complex and technically sophisticated doodle. But, and maybe one day we'll find out, but we're staring it in the face, and we're staring all these things in the face, and they do not show any sign 
of being explained by science. They just don't. So we're stuck with them. Uh-huh. Okay, so we are we are out of time, and I'd like to close with a question about what sort of projects you have next. Are you following this up with further work along the same lines, or are you jumping well, off to something different? No, I'm I'm uh, yeah, I'm working on the same lines. I'm working on a book now about uh, points of view, which is really a book about. Um, uh, Disagreement. I, as I mentioned early on, I'm very impressed by the fact that uh, some people pick 9/11 again. There's a there are people who think that 9/11 was a supreme act of beautiful sacrifice to a just and all powerful God, and it was a very worthy act. And then there's a bunch of people who think it was one of the most despicable acts in the history of humankind, uh, an act of profound evil. And I'm impressed that the same species uh, has those two beliefs. And I'm inclined to think that what this means is that once you get brains as big as ours, the fact that we're the same biological species becomes basically in the noise that humans, uh, even though they're the same biological species, actually break up into a whole bunch of species that, that are strictly a function of the things we believe and the way we believe them. So that's, that's the book I'm working on now. Very good. So, um, well, we are out of time now. Um, so I wish you luck with, with luck with that book. And, um, uh, maybe we'll have a chance to discuss that as well. Some at some point. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Eric Dietrich, professor of philosophy at Binghamton University. We've been talking about his new book, Excellent Beauty, The Naturalness of Religion and the Unnaturalness of the World, which is just out from Columbia University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.